Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us and for sticking with us through this. Uh, it's funny, for those who watched the NFL draft, it will have been last night when we're recording this. What an awesome thing for those of us that are craving sports so badly right now. I thought they did an incredible job. Um, and we happened to actually with our next special guest, uh, we did not plan this, but we do have someone with NFL experience uh, joining us this, this episode that we're really excited about. Um, we've got Jason Starkey, who happens to be one of Chris's really close friends, um, another business partner, this network of amazing men that he's, he's really um, come to know and, and love a lot. Um, Jason came to us through Chris's connection and played at Marshall with folks like Randy Moss and had just some great memories in his stories to uh, being undrafted and playing in the Arena Football League. He's got great stories there. And then uh, finally being able to uh, to make it uh, his, his childhood dream to the NFL with the Arizona Cardinals. So Jason's story is incredible. Uh, really, um, he, he's somebody that speaks with a ton of humanity humility. He's hilarious. We really enjoyed uh, laughing with him at some points. Gracious and, and also emotional. You'll notice a couple times that he gets pretty emotional about his story, which is absolutely just amazing um, what he went through. So I think you'll you'll learn a lot more uh, specifically about the, the true first step in this episode. I think his experience with going through a true first step once he ended up in that place is very inspiring. And just he speaks a lot about his influences. There are very key people in his life that made an impact on uh, not only how he ended up in recovery, but uh, really proved that they were there um, the the entire time. Uh, once once you look back in hindsight, which um, again continues to be a theme. So between the story is about his his wife, his um, absolutely awesome karaoke skills. Um, I really think you all will enjoy this. It's it's um, a fix that is fitting well. Um, with the NFL theme this week. Um, and uh, just as a nod to the title of the episode, uh, On the Moon with Jason Starkey, I'm sure you're wondering what that means. It doesn't matter. It was an inside joke between he and I uh, just before we started. So we're going to leave it at that. Thanks again for being here as always and enjoy. Happy Thursday. It's today. We are still quarantined. We are recording from three separate places again um, and really excited today to have Jason Starkey with us, a very close friend of Chris's, another great guest for us to dive in on uh, in this world of addiction and recovery. So Jason, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Jackie, Chris. It's, uh, it's an honor to be on here today with you guys. And hello, Chris. Welcome, Jason. I am amazing. Really, really happy Jason's joining us for this. He's a brother of mine and has a very, very powerful story. Awesome. Should be a good one. Well, cool. So Jason, we have, um, we are five episodes in, this will be number six, which is so exciting. And we've kind of just gone through um, using the mantra. Wait a second, trying- Jackie. I want to make sure I heard you correct. It took you six episodes to get to me. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're so sorry. Okay. I just want to make sure I heard that. Okay. All right. You're there. All right. I just want to, you know, I mean, Chris and I are close. So uh, I just, now I know where I fall. Okay, cool. (laughs) Number six. Exactly. 
I'll let you guys handle but that. I think like the first four were Chris. So I guess maybe I'm, I don't know. I'll work yeah. on that later. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> podcast all together. We're going to talk about it in a separate one. Uh, no, thank you so much. And our, our, I think our approach to uh, the ones we've had previously, not the as important ones, you know, yours is the one right here. Um, but now we're, we're talking. <laughs> there yeah. you go. We have my ego, please. <laughs> we've been uh, trying to bring as much education and awareness about addiction and recovery as possible. Uh, we've talked a million times already about how it is traditionally taboo, really not so scary once you learn more about it. And uh, there are ways to actually recover um, and get well. So would love to go in on what your story is. I know you've got an amazing one. Um, and then, you know, Chris, chime in when you can. And uh, yeah, tell us who you are and, and what you're all about. Cool. Thanks again, Jackie and Chris. And and thanks for, you know, taking the initiative on, um, you know, a podcast that looks like this. You know, I, I just really think that uh, this culture of recovery is one that's ever growing. And I'm a you know, proud member of it and, and excited to, uh, you know, explore my story, especially if it'll benefit someone else. So it's always an honor to, to be engaged in this capacity. So thank you. I mean, even if it did take, you know, six podcasts before you got to me, um, I'm excited to be here nonetheless. We're never no. going to live that down hey. <laughs> yeah. So most of the time when I talk, you know, I always say something like this, you know, I'm, I'm Jason Starkey and I'm, I'm a recovered addict and alcoholic. And, um, you know, today I'm excited to just tell you a little bit about my story and kind of see where this conversation, you know, goes organically. Look, I'm the youngest of, uh, of three boys. I've got an older brother who's 10 years older than me and a middle brother at seven years older than me. And my story starts in the hills of West Virginia. Um, you know, my mom and dad, I come from a very normal middle class, a low middle class family. You know, life was good, man. I grew up, you know, barefoot and playing in the woods. You know, most, most of what you hear about West Virginia is true. And, uh, and I was a kid that really ate it all up. You know, my, my parents, yeah, they got a divorce when I was 11 years old. And uh, my brother went off to the Marines um, shortly before that. <clears throat> so I went from a full house, you know, to living with my mom. Um, and it seemed like that happened rather quickly. Just to give you some insight of kind of who I am, you know, both parents worked. Mom worked at the YMCA. Dad worked, you know, in tax or accounting work, stuff like that. None of these things have anything to do with why I picked up my first drink, you know. And to the best of my ability, I, that was around the age of 12, maybe 13. And uh, from what I can remember of that experience, you know, I drank because of the effect produced by alcohol. You know, ever since I can remember, I can remember two things. Jackie and Chris knows this about me. I can remember wanting to play the game of football, you know, being a young kid on the sidelines of the varsity football game in our little community in Barbersville, West Virginia, watching my older brother play the game. You know, I'm holding the water, waiting for a timeout and play so I can run on the field and, uh, you know, be a part of the action. And uh, the feeling I had of being a part of something bigger than me was really intoxicating. So ever since I can remember, I can remember wanting to play football. But equally as important is ever since I can remember, I can remember feeling different, just mm -hmm. physically, mentally different than my peers. I mean, you know, West Virginia is big on family reunions, especially in the early 80s. You know, I can remember going to my mom's side reunion, my dad's side reunion, you know, big campgrounds, 4-H campgrounds. Everyone comes from all over that side of the country. And I'm the kid at that get-together, and I just feel like I'm, you know, this isn't my family. I'm not really a part of these guys. I'm the outcast. Everyone's looking at me. Everyone's judging me. And I'm talking, this is real experiences that I recall at the ripe old age of 
eight, nine, ten years old. So ever since I can remember, I can remember being mentally different than my peers, or at least perceiving that I was. And uh, and I can remember wanting to play sport to kind of make up or compensate for that insecurity. Anyway, when I drank, I drank for the effect. It was 12, 13 years of age. I was in middle school. I recall cutting class and going to a friend's house and his dad was somebody special in that community. So they had a nice house and, and they had a nice billiard room with a great bar. So we got into that stuff. And, and I remember coming to on his driveway and the mailman's car is like right ready to run me over. And he's kicking me to kind of wake me up. And then uh, I go back to school. Mm. <laughs> I didn't have anywhere else to go. And I just remember feeling like in the classroom, like, man, I finally arrived. Now not everyone's looking at me and judging me, which is kind of a probably a, weird perspective in hindsight you know to come back loaded probably in seventh grade um and think that everyone now accepts you right and in, in that setting in, in, an, in an educational environment so it's funny really it was, quick it's it's funny because that that phrase i have arrived has come up multiple times in chris's story and john's story and baba's story it's really interesting uh the similarities and we can certainly talk about that more but but i i smile uh, just quickly because I, i'm like it's it's so similar you know everybody's yeah and if you look if you look at the cycle of addiction or, or cycle of the disease it always ends up back to that spiritual malady where you're irritable restless and discontent and i think that you know some people may not even know they have it as a kid or, or whatever, but as soon as you do have that first drink or, or you get that, that buzz going on, it's that feeling of, of ease and comfort that takes away that irritable restlessness and discontent. And that's what, that's what people chase for, for ever, you know, into the gates of insanity or death, as it said. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of interesting and kind of funny how every single story is the same from, a perspective of the malady and the physical craving and, and mental obsession. So anyways, of course, you know, and I can relate to that too, you know, um, being sober for quite some time and hearing a lot of people talk, you know, it's, it's common denominator in a lot of stories is uh, just that, you know, feeling of not fitting in and then that compensation through drugs and alcohol in order to get to a place where you feel like you're comfortable in your own skin. So I was struggling with that at a, certain degree you know at a very young age and the way that progressed in my life was rather rapidly now when I graduated from middle school went on to high school I finally got the opportunity to play football and I've been waiting for that moment forever my parents wouldn't let me play until I was in ninth grade kind of a little side story my dad grew up in a small community same as my mom and football wasn't even allowed to be played until that age so they enforced the same logic in my life and I couldn't stand it so I was a rebel about all that but um, <laughs> I was terrible anyway by the time I started playing football I, was, I wasn't very good in ninth grade I was I'm a tall guy and I was probably six foot three and a freshman I'm, you know, I'm a six foot five guy now now with a bean pole I might have weighed 190 pounds right and anyway so I'm I'm thinking you know to stay in line with what we're talking about hey I finally arrived I'm able to try out for the football team you know I'm going to be accepted in all the clubs now and and yada, yada, yada. And, um, and it just didn't happen that way. You know, even when I played the sport, it was fulfilling to a certain degree, but there was still those, you know, awkward moments where I'm still in my own skin, whether it be when I'm waking up looking in the mirror or whether I'm dating a girl for the first time or whether I'm going to social functions. It's just, you know, my identity was always associated with that of an athlete. 
And it was always the icebreaker. It was always the topic of conversation. It was always where, where I sought acceptance, both in my home and in my circles. And, um, and I just always had a certain level of anxiety around all of that stuff. I found as I grew older in high school, that you know, marijuana, certain forms of speed that you can get over the counter, you know, definitely large amounts of alcohol. I was a binge drinker little bit of LSD, you know, those are the things I dabbled with at that age. But I mean, to be honest, being from a low middle class family, you know, kind of with a little uh, niche for, you know, liking to change the way I feel synthetically, I would have probably tried anything that you guys had. You know, that's kind of my yep. story. I, I, I was really, I didn't discriminate, <laughs> if you will. It's just whatever was available. If someone told me this, this would, this would make you feel different, then I'm going to give it a shot. That could be shrooms, acid, whatever so just to kind of paint that picture for the audience you know i was dabbling or experimenting in all of that you know and in hindsight i think i was you know more than likely um you know what what i've learned to know as a as a moderate user you know i, I really think if given sufficient reason at this time in my life i could have probably stopped hmm. uh, and or controlled and enjoyed you know like i see you know other people in my life today uh, that's just kind of my thought i don't know if i was born this way i'm not a doctor but you know I wasn't really facing any real consequences you know I was never missing practice I was always you know going to school I was you know I wasn't losing relationships you know it was just something that I did for fun as often <laughs> as I could you know so when I finally got to a place where I graduated high school I got an opportunity to go play ball in a little local university called Marshall oh, University Chris knows me <laughs> yeah so mm -hmm. he knows how passionate played with I am about the university yeah. That's amazing. I don't know if Jackie even knows who that is. Does Jackie know who that is? Of course I know who that is. <laughs> Come on. I'm a pretty horrible sports fan in general, but I, I absolutely know who Randy Moss is. Of Her course. whole life is the sports world. My, yes. <laughs> I do. I'm an event planner. I'm an event planner, and I happen to plan events in sports. I'm not the greatest sports fan, though. I would, I, hockey is what I love. Um, and the rest oh, I love to cool. watch, but you know, um, I know, I know enough. I know enough. I feel like <laughs> that's cool. I do have a, yeah, quick so Randy, I do have go a ahead, quick go for it. real quick. So just looking back on your, on your childhood, what, what were your, like, I mean, I don't know if you had early memories of addiction, alcoholism, or any, um, education that you remember or what your uh, perception of all of that was before you got into it. Do you have any memories, um, you know, before you tried your first drink of, of what you thought about um, alcoholism addiction or did you not know it? I'm just kind of curious about growing up. Was never exposed to the idea of the ism. And what I mean when I say that is I was never ever exposed, and I don't even really think that generation was to a certain degree, to the concept that this is a disease. Like, this is something to watch out for. Yep. You know, this is very much, you know, a, a culture that exists within our, you know, culture. Like, none of that. Like, my, my education on drinking in general, for example, that football team that I was a water boy for at the ripe old age of six, seven, and eight, hmm. you know, mom and dad would have keg parties at our house. And they were the responsible parents because they collected everyone's keys. Yeah. upon entry and then I you know at a young age idolizing these boys from the get-go I'll never forget like just hearing the the jubilation that existed within that fraternity 
in our downstairs of our home. You know, we had a nice home, and and they would you know they were confined to the whole downstairs you know den area, outside of course, and they'd party all the way into the night, and they'd play quarter bounce and various different beer games, and they'd get rowdy and listen to you know Hank Williams Jr. and country <laughs> music, and it's just like I'm like man, this is cool like yeah. we're the house that everyone wants to be at you know so that's one example it's a microcosm of really what my alcoholism education if you will was mm-hmm. it was like if you drink you don't drive like that's being responsible and as long as you're able to do that you know you can you know partake as much as you want and we're talking about people who are in high school 18 year olds you know they were seniors 17 year olds you know, I think the legal age back then, dating myself a little bit, was 18, but yeah. So, and then as I got older, you know, I paid attention and I saw that within the community of my friends who were a little older, you know, drinking was kind of like the next natural, you know, step in the totem pole to be accepted, you know, acknowledged, you know, that you weren't a kid anymore. That, yeah. that, I don't know if that answers your question, yeah. but that's really the exposure that I had. It does. And it sounds very standard, you know, for what, you know, most kids I would assume go through. And um, it's interesting that you you have the recollection of the team being there and the keg parties and actually seeing it as actually, you know, a positive thing. And everybody's having fun because of this stuff, or at least just in gathering, it seems very uh, common, I would say, for what we hear of, you know, families today. So nothing crazy. Uh, really interesting. And thanks for, thanks for that. Um, so continue. You're at Marshall. Yeah, so Marshall was a really cool experience, and you know, and as I got to this age group, I'm still I'm staying with my dad now. Uh, moved out of the whole mom house, and his stepdad wasn't really, you know, I wasn't a big fan. But <clears throat> so I'm living with dad. I'm commuting to Marshall. I'm a walk-on on the football team. My middle brother is still in that community. He's seven years older. He's in and out of the house. Kind of starting to live the wilder life. Like that older brother I talked about that had the keg parties in high school, he went on to be a Marine. And basically what that means, he took his party, you know, to Paris Island and then moved to various different parts of the country, deployed three different times, you know, and, and really was out of my life physically for a long time. And I can come back to that later. Jeff, on the other hand, my middle brother, you know, was a master welder, you know, blue collar worker. And as I'm going to college, you know, being the only one in my family to do that besides my dad, you know, he's kind of starting to dabble in other things. You know, my, my brother's story and my story are both meaningful to me in, as it relates to this topic. So Jeff was a real heavy drinker and, and also a heavy steroid user. And hmm. so, you know, I can remember, you know, having to give him shots. And I didn't reference this earlier, but I would have taken anything you had so as long as it didn't involve a needle. I have a huge phobia to this day of needles. Mm. I still have a hard time getting a flu shot, right? So <laughs> that kind of person was asked or made at young ages to give his middle brother shots, you know? So it was just, it, we were we were definitely a dysfunctional dynamic, right? And uh, and he, he struggles and struggled, I should say, with, you know, with, with addiction, alcoholism and all that stuff. And my exposure in that regard became a little bit more chaotic and not just the, you know, the cute little keg party where everyone turns in their keys before they show up. So I wanted to kind of bring you and your audience up to speed on the other element of my life that was existing about the time that I'm going to college. So college was cool. 
I got to play with some superstars, you know, that I get to call friends, and some of them I still keep in touch with today. Mm-hmm. You know, one of them was my quarterback. His name's Chad Bennington. Mm-hmm. Just a really prince of a man, salt of the earth kind of person. His father was his high school coach. Coach Pennington plays a special role in my story. And at this time in my life, you know, when I'm starting to come up through my walk-on years, because Chad and I went there at the same time, you know, he started rather quickly. You know, I had to gain some weight and and a little bit more uh, talent before I got my opportunity. But, you know, um, you know, I think fear needs to be brought up now, you know, because by this point, I've got a lot of anxiety that I can associate with a lot of fears that I had in my life. And if I can just try to put that in perspective, you know, before I went to my first camp, you know, I was a walk on. My dad and I had a sit down where dad explained to me, look, son, you know, I know you want to go and try out for this football team, but I need you to know if you don't get a scholarship this year, you're going to have to get a job. And that may mean you'll have to quit the team, you know, and we had an understanding, you know, and I think my dad even borrowed money from my middle brother just to pay for me to go you know, to school that first semester. So I had a lot of stress. Like I was afraid of failing for a multitude of reasons. I mean, nobody likes to fail in the first place when you're a type A kind of person. Sure. But at the same time, when the very, you know, dream that you're pursuing is at stake, you don't want to fail for that reason either. So fear was very prevalent in my college life, you know, just from that standpoint. Now add into it, like I never really did that well in class. You know, and I, and I used to justify that because, well, I didn't really have to, or it wasn't that hard, or in my senior year, I started skipping a lot of school and whatever. <laughs> so I had a lot of delusion around why I didn't succeed in school. But when I got to college, I had to take some remedial classes as a result. I had financial, um, you know, restrictions, I should say. I had tutors that were assigned to me, and I had certain academic standards I had to exceed, yeah. or else, you know, I didn't get certain luxuries, right? Like I had study hall mandatory every single night. Um, and I had to check all my homework before I could leave, you know, and go home. And, uh, so I had all this academic fear too, right? And then you throw in the party scene, the girls and that other element of college. And I'm just walking around scared to death. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm also walking around scared to death with, with, with the, uh, identity I'm trying to create the reputation, if you will, I'm trying to uphold that, I'm this tough football player that's going to make it that you should invest the scholarship in because I've got what it takes. So this whole paradox started to exist within me that really influenced the manner of which I would behave, um, conduct myself in relationships, how open I would really get. I always had this distinct feeling that if you really knew who I was and what I was all about and what I really struggled with. Like you wouldn't want to date me. You wouldn't want to give me a scholarship. You wouldn't want me probably even in your class or working for your business. So all of this is going on. That's so um, interesting to me because I mean, it's, it's, you say that you were walking around with so much fear. Is that something you think was unique to you or is that more common throughout some of the guys that are, you know, that are held to that, standard essentially or expectation my experience is fear is something that a lot of people in recovery or you know inactive addiction or alcoholism struggle with yeah um, it talks about in our program of recovery that alcoholics and drug addicts are men and women who are driven by a hundred forms of fear self-delusion self-seeking and self-pity and almost every single decision that i make and a lot of the 
um, men that I know and women that I know that are involved in this deal is everything really stems from fear. It says that the root of our troubles is, is selfishness and self-centeredness. And, and the reason why we're such selfish and self-centered people is because we're, we're in so much fear that it causes us to act out in hundreds of different defects of character. You know, like when I'm in fear of people liking me, I try to act cooler. When I'm in fear of, of being inferior to someone, I try to act superior. And it kind of causes these defects of character that makes me look kind of like an ass. You know, when you do dive into getting better and accepting spiritual help and uh, trying a new way of life, like that's one of the first things you dig into is your resentments, your fears, and you figure out kind of how your mind works and why it works. And, and it's a pretty cool healing process because you don't have to live in fear anymore once you get better. And, and that's, that's a miracle. So yeah, my two cents. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks for expanding on that. And I would even um, follow up with saying this too hindsight and my experience today as a recovered man who you know doesn't drink or use or any of that stuff that I used to do and running a business like I know Chris does I don't think fear is unique to just me or dare I say to just people in recovery or that need recovery no. I think everyone has deep rooted fears you know and I just really feel like I'm one of the lucky ones that's finally learned how to get in touch with them even today have a solution for walking through them instead of avoiding them, right? And, and as it speaks to this time in my life when I'm in college and going through all this achievement issues that I was seeking, right? Acceptance issues, insecurity issues, like I'm dealing with a certain level of fear, but I wouldn't say it would be just unique to me. I think all college kids experience that Absolutely. to a certain degree. It's just same people, right? They, they, they typically... Like, I don't know, for me, I would drink, I would use like what my Their solution like isn't here. to run to a bottle or a pill. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. Or yeah, our, our stage for me to run to what fixes it. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, you know, now, you know, I'm the little hometown hero kid coming up and I'm starting to associate with restaurant owners and business, you know, and I, you know, I innately know the ones I want to hang out with. Right. Like the ones that act like my dad, I kind of stay away from them. But the young ones that want to be cool and have the college football player at their place, at their bar, right? I start figuring out, well, these guys got some dope, and, you know? And so just innately, I, I get to start doing the expensive stuff, you know? And cocaine comes in my life. Mm -hmm. And then it takes me to a place I hadn't been before. And now I can stay up all night long and drink. You know, my first, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this, my first job in high school, my senior year, was I was a bouncer for our local strip joint. And my parents, I told them. Darky, that I never I, knew that about you. Yeah, it's called Sports Page. And I was, and I got the opportunity through a guy that played football with me the year before, and he had just graduated. He's like, hey, you need some money working on Sports Page. Oh, I did the whole thing. You know, I dated the pregnant stripper and all of it. I can't believe I just said that. So, um, and her name was Diamond, or Lisa, or her stage name. Of oh, my course. God. Anyway, so we're already there. Band-Aid's off. <laughs> oh, man. So, and I told my parents these late nights, you know, I'm a janitor at the YMCA, Mom. You know, and Mom had since moved on from that profession, but we had such a connection with our local YMCA. We knew the GMs and all that. So they bought it, right? So I'm getting home in the middle of the night at my dad's house. Dad didn't ask any questions. I'm janitor of the YMCA, and I'm literally kicking people out of bars, a senior in high school, starting to dabble in some of these crazy things I'm talking about, right? And, um, and I kind of felt cool. So right naturally, when I go walk on at Marshall, my next gig is to be a bouncer at the roughest bar in town. 
And the reason was the guy that owned that place was the guy that brought in all the coke to that entire region. So he became, you know, my, my best buddy. So anyway, and then there was a big lie about, you know, that with my dad. And, and, and the reason I bring these things up is because at this age, I'm learning how to manipulate people in my life who actually care about and respect their opinion. But my morals, my values, you know, that, that moral compass starts to get pushed a little bit. And I start to behave differently than I would have possibly just a couple years sooner than that because I got a taste for this stuff you know yeah. I got a taste for doing things that are typically shocking you know to, to the average human being and and I just like the way that 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 not only made me feel but the way that it, it made people perceive me right. which was so important you know I try to fix from this age on and even sometimes today I'll try to treat an internal condition with external factors hmm. My problems exist within my head, right? And I'll try to fix the way I think about me um, and perceive me through things I do and ways that I interact. So, yeah. and, and this yeah. really became prevalent, you know, in college. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting the the concept of fear, and especially in college. And as you're just trying to learn who you are, I can absolutely relate to fear, um, not being somebody that's gone through what you both have. And it's it's funny to think about. Um, that being, I wish, I wish we all knew that right in college and, and in early years, just because if you realize that you're going to go on your own little journey and you're going to figure out who you are, um, you, you don't have to worry so much about perception and expectation. And I, I battled a lot with living in expectation and um, being a, a giver, a giver here and there to every friend and expecting things back. And, you know, I battled my own stuff. So I think everyone does go through the, the challenges of fear. What's interesting in your story, and I know we'll get, you know, into your career as well, but uh, we all idolize, I mean, our society idolizes, especially football players. And to hear you say, um, you know, that you were going through this internal battle um, when, you know, and, and I'm sure some of the other guys around you, and now that athletes have been so much better about speaking out about the things that they've been through where, you know, we're all, we all have blinders on when we're watching athletes um, and specifically football players kind of, you guys are king, right? And to, to know, and, and I think a big part of this too, and talking about it is not just awareness of addiction and recovery, but it's also that every single person is going to go through something and, and that this was, this happened to be part of your journey. Um, and so I, I appreciate you sharing that part because I do think that that's a huge deal. And I agree. And, um, you know, coping skills is what I was trying to think of earlier. You know, everyone to a certain degree experiences insecurity, fear, you know, the need to be accepted, appreciated, and loved, right? And when you feel like you are not getting certain things you believe you deserve, or when you are being treated in ways that you don't believe you deserve, you know, your means of coping with that, um, and really getting to the truth of that, because there's a lot of delusion around all that, are different for every human being. And I want to also say Coach Pennington and Chad Pennington, right? Just a great example of a family you know, I mean, it always looks like the grass is greener on the other side, right? Just about anything. You know, it could be someone else's family. It could be, you know, that other job. It could be, you know, whatever, the neighbor, right? I mean, I think as humanity, we all covet each other, you know, at some level. So when I'm in college, I'm looking at Chad and his sister, Andrea, and their mother, Denise, and, and Elwood, Coach Pennington, and they're, they're, they're Christians, you know, and they're just, they, they walk their faith. They're not trying to reform everybody. They're not evangelists. They're not all up in your face, right? They just live this, 
spiritual way of life. And like Chad, I don't know if you know him, Jeff, but I mean, you know yep. Randy, right? Yep. <laughs> Chad in this small community is this badass. Like he could literally get away with anything he wanted. And he's a close friend even to this day. And yeah, he'll have beverages with us, but he's by no means smoking. And he knows I smoke. He's by no means doing lines. And he knows I do lines. And, you know, probably his dad does too, because I mean, I wore everything on my sleeve. And so after games, you know, Chad's dad has a VIP access because shit, he's Chad's dad, right? And so he's in the locker room and he'll always just kind of look at me with these eyes like, you know, come talk to me, Jason. You don't, you know, you don't have to live that way, Jason. Like, come stay at our place, Jason. Like, all this wholesome, I love you just the way you are. You don't need to go to that party. You don't need to live this life. Like, you're, you know, God's got such a bigger plan for you. Kind of, kind of mild conversations. It wasn't really that deep, but the way I, way I received that is like, oh man, I don't even want to go over there. Coach P's over there. Like, the game's yeah. over. Everybody's like, hey, we're going to Jason's house. He's getting a keg and a couple balls and the girls, you know, like, and yeah. then there's coach P over there, like Jason, come talk to me, hmm. you know, and Chad wouldn't show up at the party, right? He'd go to his girlfriend, now his wife's. And it's just like, I had this example of, of what, what it should look like. Right. Yeah. But I'm living this life <laughs> of just like, there's no tomorrow. Like, you know, we're going to party like it's 1999. Prince was a big deal back in the late nineties, <laughs> you know, and we all just kind of lived that. And, and, and I was kind of the mascot for all that. Like, you know, I'm the guy that you know, pulls the pants of the head coach down after practice when the Boy Scouts are standing in the end zone yeah. waiting to get autographs, you know. And he just so <laughs> happens he wasn't wearing underwear that day, you know. And all the wives, everything was solid. Like, that's me. You know, like, I'm that knucklehead. You know, and I've got so many other stories just like that where I just wanted to be the class clown and the badass teammate, you know. Right. And, I mean, and living that way, yeah, I got to be the team captain and we won a bunch of ball games and, you know, I hated Randy Moss in high school because I had to play him in high school. And we never won a state championship because of him and Bobby <laughs> Howard, Jason Williams, which is an NBA player. I mean, DuPont yep. was just loaded. So white chocolate and Randy, I mean, that's a whole other story. But in college, I loved him, right? Like, that's my teammate, man. He's all, you know, we were loaded. I was just, I was surrounded by giants. And I really had a choice. Like, I could go the Pennington way and, you know, in the Michael Williams way and the Jeremy Eastwood way, and I could be praying and, living a spiritual life, or I could keep bouncing at titty bars and freaking doing lines and being crazy and just trying to keep my sanity and my grades together so that this, this ride never ends. And that's really what, what college looked like for me. And did, uh, did, did the open door message by Coach Pennington, I mean, did that resonate with you at the time? What, what did you think about that? Or were you just like, oh, yeah, that, that's nice of him? Or, or did in the back of your mind, did you kind of know that that was him calling you out in a way? <laughs> no, none of that ever really resonated till later in life hmm. um, when, I'm, when I'm looking at those experiences through a different pair of glasses. Interesting. You know, and if, and if I had a message to anybody, you know, and, and again, my parents did an amazing job. Like if they ever hear this podcast, dad, mom, you did incredible. With the hands that you were dealt and raising me, couldn't ask for better parents. <laughs> I couldn't imagine. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I mean, seriously, I've got stories for days. I told you, you hit record and tell me I got all the time I want. We could be here a while. We're here. Let's but, do it. <laughs> but my point is, what I've learned from that experience and what I try to apply in my home now, trying to raise two kids of my own, 
you know, with a wife who comes from a divorced family, you know, we, you know, I come from a divorced family, like we don't want that for our house. Right. So unity is a big deal. It's a tradition and, and, you know, and fellowships that I affiliate with, you know, but also transparency, honesty, communication, like spiritual way of life. Like these are things that I saw and was to some level attracted to in the Pennington household and these, you know, some other households, but I mean, dude, I'm, I mean, I'm living with my dad. He works all the time. I pretty much can come and go as I please. I've got a full scholarship at this point. You know, I've got town checks that are coming every month. I'm going to have fun. Like, yep. and as long as I'm passing and I wasn't just passing, like I, I graduated with honors, you know, which was crazy. And then everybody's like, oh, they gave you the grades. I worked my ass off for that stuff. But whatever. that was a resentment I had to work on later. <laughs> my point is, well, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Like when you mentioned how, you know, Mr. Pennington would give you that look and kind of had a vibe or an aura about him that was not a judgy it doesn't sound judgy to me when you say it it sounds like all welcoming and like we've talked about it a few times in the podcast about how that's kind of the approach that that we would recommend and is recommended for friends family spouses etc etc whenever you're dealing with somebody who is dealing with some demons whether it's alcohol or drugs or not i think that if someone's dealing with demons i mean nobody wants to be a disappointment and nobody mm-hmm. wants to to feel judged and it's mm-hmm. really easy to quickly look down on someone if they're going through struggles and and if you if you leave kind of like an open arms approach to it and not let them walk all over you but give them an opportunity to be loved on a little bit it's amazing how quickly someone can kind of break and and open up and i think that it's almost like it planted a seed in you because it was one of the first mm-hmm. things you mentioned in your story through all the chaos some mm-hmm. so a moment of like peace when you look back on it with like this godlike figure kind of looking at you and, and letting you know that there is a way but you weren't you just weren't ready to hear not what that close, was yeah and i think that's a very accurate assessment and and i agree you know with that position chris i i really feel like for people like me <laughs> dare i say you that's the appropriate way to approach us you know trying to live an attractive life trying to uh, approach with grace you know, even today, if I got to tell somebody the truth, I always want to preface it with grace. Like I always want mm-hmm. to just try to ensure them that, you know, I love them, you know, they matter, um, affirm them and then hit them with a little truth, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, Ch- and Chad and his family and his dad were great about that. Like there was so many people in that community and even today that want to be included in that family you know like they included me i mean they really made me feel like i was another son and it all started you know back then so yeah and they had everything like you know, they didn't want for nothing and that's not to say they were rich monetarily they were just rich in spirit and therefore they just walked around having something i wanted but i wasn't in a place where i was able to see it recognize it and you know and so life went on definitely the appropriate way to to uh, communicate associate with people in our life that we may be concerned about um, how much they drink, the manner of which they party, and what their life is looking like as a result of those two. But I want to be clear, the best way to approach anyone that we think struggles with addiction and alcoholism is with someone that's already recovered from those two things. Yes. If you don't have the means or know someone like that, you know, that's you could probably give resources throughout your podcast, but there's many resources out there that 
that you could phone in and, and, and you could you can work with someone or have someone help work an interventionist or just someone along those lines. Because the best way to be approached when you struggle with those two things I've found is by someone that used to struggle with them that no longer does. Yep. And and just to yep. give an example of the wrong way to do it, uh, my college girlfriend, um, I'll never forget, um, almost ready to graduate. I'm on top of the world, literally. She writes my dad this big ass letter and literally just tells him, you think your son is this and this is what he really is. Hmm. You think he's this, but he's really doing cocaine. He's really working strip joints. He's really doing this. He's really treating me this way. He's really drinking like this. This is who he like that fear and insecurity. Like if you knew who I was, you wouldn't want to be with me. Like she literally put all that in a letter and sent it to pops. Uh, Wow. So that's an example of what not to do. Right. right. (laughs) And the way that I handled that, you know, for mere fear of rejection, just at the, at the very minimum, right. Not to mention all the other man codes you broke. I'm out. Like I'm out. I I did my, I did my first geographical shortly after that occurred. As soon as I got an opportunity, I had an agent in my life at this time. There was tryouts that I'd already participated, you know, because I played with such great football players. I mean, literally 11 of us um, from my senior year got an opportunity to go to an NFL camp. You know, everyone came to Marshall. Everyone was at pro day. I had an opportunity, you know, to run, lift, and do all that crap. And so, therefore, you know, I got a little agent. He wasn't, you know, your big-time agent. You would have never heard of him before, but he convinced me to sign with him. I didn't really think there was a chance I could have got drafted, but this little boy inside of me was hoping I would have. And so I sit down with dad and we wait for that day and we watch the whole draft literally 20 years ago, you know, hoping to see my that name was 20 years on ago? the first night. It was 20 years ago. It'd be 20 years ago tomorrow, technically, because I had no delusion in my life that I was going on the first day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but as I saw, as I saw Chad's name go through for the jets, you know, at the 18th pick, I get chill bumps thinking about it now. Mm. And as I see, my running back, Doug Chapman, go in the third round, and my safety, Rogers Beckett, go in the second round of the Chargers. I just, you know, I start to get excited, you know. And the next day, because they used to do one, two, three in the first day, and then they do the rest in the second day. So the next day, I'm hoping, my agent's thinking, that I'm going six, you know, rounds. Yes. Maybe last round. And so <clears throat> as that progresses, and, and eventually I don't get picked, you know, just the, you know, it's any time you get disappointed in life, right? And I don't remember exactly what I did, but I remember how I felt. And it just, and I watched it with my dad. It was just me and my dad. And he had his hopes up, I could tell. And when it didn't happen, and then the phone didn't ring. And then the phone yeah, rang. What you and it's all my, I've always wondered what, what athletes feel like in those moments, especially an athlete who is riddled with those, those fears and feelings that they've been using alcohol or drugs to cope with the whole time. Like, what are you feeling mm-hmm. in that exact moment? man, it's really hard to articulate. And, and for someone like you, Chris, and anybody that's played sport at any level, you could probably really get in tune with it. But <clears throat> my identity was this. I mean, ever since I can remember, five, six, seven years old, water boy, you know, uh, for my, my brother's high school football team. You know, I grew up to play for that same football coach. You know, the community just endeared me and took me for all my good, bad, and the ugly. And just, you know, I get to this position where we really think there's a chance and then it doesn't happen. And then furthermore, I don't get a call, but I do get calls from my other buddies. Our left tackle got a call from the Browns. Our linebacker got a call from the Buccaneers. Our, you know, <clears throat> our defensive end got a call from the Jets. You know, I mean, 11 of us, right? Only three of us got drafted. 
the other seven got phone calls. I was the only one that didn't. And so now I'm just like, shit, like my whole identity was wrapped up in being a football player. And I knew eventually it was going to be over, but I was just hoping I'd be one of the few that it'd be over on my terms. And so the level of disappointment that I've let my family down, mm-hmm. thinking that they actually, you know, were disappointed when they were just really proud. Like not many families get to even think that they have a chance to do something like that. Yet right. mine did. I just internalized all that, Chris. I just took it all real personal. And I was really angry and I was really ashamed and I didn't want to be in public. And I just, I just wanted to get loaded. And so I did, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the letter, I don't remember timeline wise, but I know it was that semester. I mean, that's when dad got the letter. And I just really thought that if this could come through, then maybe he'd be proud of me again. And maybe it would all work out. Maybe my life's not such a failure. Maybe he'll forget about that letter that Shelly sent. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't play out that way. So <clears throat> anyway, fast forward. A few weeks, my agent follows up on the regular. And finally, he's like, Jason, hey, man, I know the NFL doesn't look like it's working out right now, but we believe you need to keep playing ball. And that meant <clears throat> to consider arena football. Yeah. It's not a real popular thing now. It wasn't even really that popular then. And so I'm like, oh, he goes, there's a lot of teams interested in you, Jason. And keep in mind, there's a lot of drama going on with me and all these emotions I'm trying to articulate and all this insecurity that I'm dealing with. I've already graduated from college. I've been accepted into the master's program for child psychology. I was dabbling with the idea of being a child psychologist one day, but my girlfriend was just, I mean, God dang, you know, you write a letter like that. It's hard. It's hard to you know, forget about that stuff and forgive it, especially when you got no tools for living and you're not living a spiritual life. So yeah. I'm like, who's calling? He's like, well, Columbus. And I'm like, ah, it's too, too close. Albany, New York, you know, they just won the turf bowl or whatever they call their Super Bowl. I was like, no, I ain't going <laughs> up there. And he said, Tampa Bay. <clears throat> I said, Tampa Bay? He said, yeah, they got a team. It's called the Storm. I was like, well, that's in Florida. And that's pretty far away. So my first geographical was me loading up my little S10, listening to Kenny Chesney carry your love with me and drive my ass all the way to Florida, man. I couldn't wait <laughs> to put West Virginia in the rearview mirror. I couldn't wait to put that girlfriend in the rearview mirror. Yeah. I couldn't wait to go down there with a you know clean slate and a fresh start. And as all my brothers were going to the NFL camps, I'm driving down to jump right into an arena season. I mean, they're already four or five weeks into the season. Um, but this is what I call a geographical. Chris and I kind of refer to it this way. It's like you think your problems are associated to a certain geographical location or you attribute your issues with drinking and drugging with certain people in your life. And my solution at this time was just getting the hell away from them and it. And I have this new plan and it's going to be, you know what? I'm not going to drink all the weekends. I'm sorry. And I'm not going to use any drugs. Right. Cause I won't even know who has it. Right. You know, and that was my plan. And I would have swore on a stack of Bibles and I get down there and <laughs> I mean, it was within two weeks. I mean, we're rolling blunts and, and smoking drugs and, and throwing dice on upside down coffee tables and I'm getting twisted. And, yep. and I'm right back. I mean, wherever I went, there I am, you know, eventually I had to look, you know, at the real problem, which was me, you know, and I just wasn't in a place where I was willing to do that. Yeah. Did your, you know, your agent and your dad and everyone around you before you left for that, I mean, does everyone know that you have a problem? Did they? Sorry. I don't think so. I mean, I think that question, they'd probably be a better one to answer. I think I pulled it off. You know, I mean, in my mind, I had them all fooled, you know, and honestly, 
I didn't think I had a problem. Right. Interesting. You know? I mean, I came up with this plan, right, that I was going to be able to control and enjoy and, and stay away from certain things. And obviously that plan was thrown out the window. So, you know, I'm, I'm starting to, again, push that, that moral compass and that, that line of things I'll never do. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely wasn't a place where I thought I had a problem. So I would like to think they weren't there either. Yeah. Um, but I grew up in a family that didn't talk about that stuff. I and mean, we, sure. we never really were very open and affectionate and honest about much of anything <laughs> to be complete. I mean, it's just that culture. I mean, you don't talk about finances. You don't talk about why you're fighting with mom. You don't talk mm-hmm. about really why we got a divorce. You don't talk about, you know, the other man that came into your life. Like that stuff just never gets, you know, broken down. Right. So that's kind of how I dealt with those types of things. If it's uncomfortable, then let's just sweep it under the rug and, and not discuss it. But I, I don't think they thought that I was an addict, you know, right. alcoholic. So. Yeah. So I get to play my first game. It took me five weeks. There's only 20, 20 people, I think, on an on a arena team. In arena ball, you go in and shifts. Like, you know, I was, a, I was a center, and you have to play both ways. And I was a defensive lineman. I was a backup. So they would shift people off. Like when I would shift on in the first quarter, because I'm that second shift, I cannot come off the field unless I'm injured until that quarter ends. Anyway, so I finally get a chance to play. It's my fifth week there. And, and this team's made up of a bunch of, you know, washed up NFL players. I mean, talented dudes, you know, or people like me that were just on the bubble that didn't get picked and you know, were doing that. But I remember most of my Tampa teammates were all from the NFL. Like they had long careers, couldn't cut the cord, wasn't ready to get a real job had their own demons, and then here comes this young buck, right? Right in, the, right in the beginning of the season. They'd already gone through their camp. And anyway, I get my final chance to play uh, that fifth week. I shift on, and, you know, I played pretty decent, you know, on the offense side of the ball. And then we got a kickoff, and then I run down the field, and then I'm on defense. And, of course, now I'm what? I'm trying to get paid. So yep. I'm wearing myself out trying to cause a fumble or get a sack or whatever. And so now I'm on offense again, you know, because I'm nowhere near shifting off. Then I start to give up plays, and then before you know it, I give up my first sack, and now I'm back on defense, and now I can't even move. I'm puking. Now I'm on offense, and now I can't even block anybody. I mean, I literally have the worst game of my life. Hmm. And I drive home after that game when it was just, I mean, terrible. I've never played that bad, ever. And my whole identity is in this, right? It's important for everyone to know that like, I, I attribute all of my – perception of success and failure with my ability to play this sport and after this game this night I'm driving home and I'm I mean really depressed hmm. and I pull in my place and I, and I go into my condo and I see that I have a message on my answer machine now for your younger crowd an answer machine is this little device <laughs> that used to be plugged into a phone that actually would be hanging on a wall right so when someone call your house and you weren't there a little tape would record a tape say, <laughs> thanks for laughing. So I hit the play button, and it's this, it's this scout from Arizona. His name was Jim Stanley. Jason, you know, we'd really like to talk to you about coming out here and trying out for our ball club. And I'm thinking to myself, on this night of all nights, I mean, the irony is, is crazy. <laughs> I'm thinking, so this has got to be a joke. This is one of them older NFL players on the team screwing with me. There's no way this is real. Yeah. And the next message on that machine was my dad. And he pretty much confirmed everything that Jim just said. Hey, this scout from Arizona has been calling all day. You better call him now. So I call him. We have a conversation. It was real. He wanted me to fly out. He wanted me to fly out the next day. I said, look, man, I'm, you know, I'm some of these guys. I think the right thing for me to do is go to the team meeting tomorrow 
inform my head coach who happens to be the owner of that team as well. Hmm. And, and then is it okay if I come out, you know, on Wednesday? He said, sure. So I go the, I go the next day and then I walk in and this is how this looks. Everyone's going to the team meeting, right? And I, and I coach, you know, can I talk to you a minute for outside? He's like, yeah, sure. Start. You know, I'm not sure he's pissed. We lost the game in large part because the way I play. And we're getting ready to watch the film right now. So I just want to kind of set that up. I said, coach, uh, when I got home last night, uh, I got a call from uh, a scout with the Arizona Cardinals. And he looked at me, and I swear to God, what'd they call you for? Oh, no. I said, well, coach, they want to fly me out. They wanted to fly me out today, but I told them I needed to come and tell you, so I'm leaving tomorrow. I said, I said, what do you think I should do? He said, I'd get your ass on that plane before they see last night's game. <laughs> he said, That's come brutal. in here and let me show you. So I go in and make the mistake of sitting down with all those washed-up NFL players that just wanted one more chance. We watched the film, and you better believe every opportunity this coach, like many coaches in my life, got the opportunity to to rag on me. He did. He put the red dot on me. You see this guy right here? Would you guys believe this mf got called by the Arizona Cardinals last night? I mean, oh. look at this terrible block. Brutal. I mean, that's how the team meeting looks. And that's a lot what football looks like. It's all, they know you're afraid. They know you're insecure. They know you want to please them, and you're trying to get them to accept you. And a lot of my coaches use that against me. Hmm. You know, and he was definitely one of them. So, anyway, Oof. my second geographical was on the Wednesday after that team meeting. And I flew out to Arizona to yeah. go into my first training camp. I mean, what were you thinking? Okay, you finally made it, right? This is your dream. And this is what you identify with. And this has been your whole life. Like, I can't imagine that day where you finally, you kind of land and it's like, I made it, right? <laughs> I landed a little after midnight in Phoenix, Arizona in June, middle of June, never forget. And it was over 105 degrees. <laughs> and it... Any any part of me was like, man, this is going to be great. Once I got off that plane and it hit me in the face at midnight, I'm like, what the hell am I doing, right? Like, <laughs> my last game, I just I ran out of gas. Like, I didn't have the capabilities to play both ways and play as long as I did. So, I'm insecure about my ability to play ball. You know, I just got my ass chewed by the head coach and owner of Arena Football Game. I played the worst game of my life in this subpar league. And now I'm walking into Arizona, this huge city. I mean, this country boy from West Virginia ain't never been to a place like Phoenix. <laughs> and I'm getting poked and prod. That, that, that trip was for me to go see their doctors. Yep. And so I had to pass a physical, you know, and then I had to go meet this, you know, the scout. And then I had to go meet the coaches. And then I flew home to get my stuff, drive back up to West Virginia and go back out for my mini camp. So to answer your question, man, I'm filled with all kinds of anxiety and fear again. Because it's like, there's no way I'm going to measure up to this Sunday game. I couldn't even play the damn arena game, oh. you know. So I'm drinking every single night trying to deal with that, you know. And uh, I go into my first training camp in Flagstaff, Arizona. There was over 150 of us. And I know they're only going to keep 53. I know there was there was at least five centers, I believe, legitimate centers on that team. One of them won a Super Bowl the previous year in 1999 with uh, the St. Louis Rams. His name's Mike Brutadoria. They just signed him to a multi-million dollar contract. So it's clear to me I ain't going to be the starter. But <laughs> the, back, the backup was Mike Devlin, who went to the Super Bowl yeah. four years in a row with uh, Buffalo Bills. And, like, all my training camp really boiled down to was me doing math every single day. I'm there like, all right, I know these guys are gone. Like, I would look at the offense line. 
we've got 19 offensive linemen. I'm looking and talking to my other friends who are all in other camps. How many offensive linemen you got? Okay, cool. How many offensive linemen did they keep last year? Okay, they kept 11. Yours kept 12. Yours kept nine. Oh, my God, how could you have nine? So the whole time I'm doing math, do they like Mike Devlin? Are they going to keep him again? Are they going to keep me and Mike? I know they're keeping the other Mike, but what about this kid Matt? kid i mean he got a good friend so i mean i'm spinning out of control every single day just wondering did i do enough albeit while i have an o-line coach that ms me every chance he gets i mean and this is the dream right like i can't wait to be in the nfl and this is reality and so i'm an advanced alcoholic at this point this is hindsight of course i don't know this they're willing to accept this but i'm literally drinking every night my day starts at 5 30 in the morning I don't wake up unless I'm in a panic attack that I'm late already. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I take that panic attack to breakfast because I've got to be at breakfast first so that I can be in the training room first so that I can get tape first. Because if I don't get there first being the undrafted rookie, then I get kicked out of the training camp and I don't get tape for practice. Because when the veterans start showing up, they take precedent. Yeah. And that's just how it is. So I don't get done. We do two days. We do meetings. We do workouts. We have meals that are all mandatory. You miss or relate to anything. You're getting fine. So my, my night ends after our last meeting, maybe around 9, maybe around 9.30, sometimes 10. Our curfew's 11. We're staying in the dorms at Northern Arizona University. And there's someone that literally checks your dorm at 11. Wow. But you better believe from the moment I got done with a meeting to 5 to 10 minutes before 11, I'm at the Applebee's at the bottom of that hill drinking gold slogger as fast as they'll give us to me. Wow. And, then, and then I drive up and I pass out because that's the only way I could even try to pass out. Yeah. You know, I couldn't sleep under those. I mean, it's just internal condition, you know, and, and that's, that's how I dealt with it. So fast forward, a couple funny stories. I got fined twice in my first training camp. <laughs> the first one was for a foul I committed, you know, on the actual field of play. Um, the other one was uh, when, when I started to kind of do the math and, and some people were getting cuts and they whittled down quite a bit. And I'm looking around, the rumors are Starkey's making an impression. You know, my ego kicks in, you yeah. know, and I'm like, yeah, I'm making an impression. So I start acting a little differently. I start fitting in the club. I start hanging out with the guys from Nebraska, which nobody likes to drink like people from Nebraska. Just <laughs> <little aside>. Seriously. <laughs> The night I met um, my, my wife, I actually, I can't believe I'm saying this, Jack. I actually take another girl back to my dorm room. And oh, I walk no. right past security, right <laughs> past the coach that's eventually going to check rooms with the girl, hammered down, thinking that why, I mean, it ain't going to be a deal, right? It's a rule. You, you obviously know that. So they check dorms until they find her in my room. And it was the assistant strength coach. I'm like, oh, we're boys. He ain't going to say nothing. And I'm loaded, by the way. Anyway, it's my turn to sing two nights later. And I'm thinking this all got swept on the rug and it's not going to be a big deal. Vince Tobin's our head coach. So it's rookie night at the team meeting and they start, you know, doing all their funky stuff and people got to sing. And then it's finally my turn. And I get up there and sing. And I used to be in the glee club. So I could sing a little bit, right? So I, I dropped the whole, you lost that love and feeling top gun effect, right? And I had the whole room into it. Like it was killer. And the moment I knew I was caught is when I look at Vince Tobin and he's not even standing up. I mean, the whole crowd standing up and Vince is just looking at his clipboard. And then he gets up and makes the announcements that some fool had somebody in the room. They'll be fine. The fine for that was 15 grand. Keep in mind, I'm only making 900 a week. Oh. They cut the fine to $7,500. So when I make the NFL football team, <laughs> this is what the phone call home looked like to my dad. 
I'm responsible for a $7,500 fine for a high-low block against the Chargers and another $7,500 fine um, for getting caught with the girl, right? And I'm on the practice squad. That's what I make. So I'm making, you know, 70 a year or something like that. Yeah. So I called that. <clears throat> I was like, Dad, I got good news. And, you know, I got, I got some bad news. <laughs> he goes, I said, what do you want to hear first? He goes, well, well, let me hear the good news. I said, Dad, I made the team, man. You're never going to believe it. They're, they're going to put me on this thing called the practice squad. I'm on the team, Dad. That's awesome, man. I'm so happy for you. That's great. What's the bad news? And I was like, well, I need a loan. (laughs) What do you mean you need a loan? I was like, well, it's a long story, dad, but I got to get an apartment now. They're kicking me out of the hotel and I need some money to do that. It's just my first check for the Arizona Cardinals was for $40. I mean, literally I would have framed the check, (laughs) but I had to cash it, cash it because I needed the money. You almost started in debt. My NFL career started. Yeah, I started in debt. Oh my gosh, what a story. That's but you made it. How cool is that, right? I, I made it. My first year was I mean, they ended up unfortunately letting Mike go, which became a friend and a mentor. Mm-hmm. He came back on as an assistant offensive line coach. He's a big part of my professional career. You know, my first year I had the mindset because I was on the practice squad. Mike Grudadoria, the starting center, he would get hurt <clears throat> a lot. And uh, he just had some really misfortunes his first year. So every time he got hurt, I got upgraded from the practice squad to the regular roster. This happened actually multiple times. Yeah. I'd stay up. I'd back up the guy that was going to start. And then when Mike got better, they'd cut me. I'd have to go through 24 hours, clear waivers, make sure nobody picked me up. And they put me back on practice squad. This happened a few different times. Instead of making 70 grand or whatever, I ended up making like 120. Because yep. every time you're on the roster, you get a nice check. You know, yep. it ain't 40 bucks. <laughs> and then every time you get cut, you know, you get back to the practice squad, which is basically you're the practice dummy. You do any damn thing they say and you run and do it. Yep. And then they give you a ticket to come to the game. So my whole thing, and I met some people outside of the team. Like I moved in this apartment with all the quarterbacks who was on the practice squad. split a car. We bought it from our long snapper. It was his, it was his 17-year-old's car. And we bought it for 1500 bucks. It was a 1988 Cadillac Seville. Had no air conditioner, right? Imagine the Phoenix, no air conditioner. <laughs> And so I moved in these apartments and I meet these other random people. Like one of these dudes owned like a tow truck company. His name was Paulie. Another dude, these kids that lived above me were loud as shit. They were um, apparently going to school. It's like the Phoenix version of uh, MIT. Like they were these, you know, computer guys, right? And one night they're being loud as hell. And it was right after I got cut. And, you know, so Keenan, the quarterback, was got practice the next day. I didn't. He's like, well, you go up there and tell him to be quiet. I was like, sure. Man. So I went up there all tough and beat on the door, ready to tell these guys to shut the hell up. You know, we got important things to do tomorrow. And when they opened the door, all the dope smoke came out. And I took a big whiff, and I was like, uh, y'all hanging out? <laughs> <laughs> I actually live downstairs, man. I want to come up and introduce myself. My name's yeah. Jason Starkey. And then I come in, and, and then I forge a friendship with these guys that, you know, <laughs> was founded on drugs and, and, and alcohol. And so we partied like crazy for years to come. They ended up being in the wedding and all that stuff too. But so my point is I found drugs rather quickly. My first year, my, my whole mantra was, I'm just going to treat this like I did my red shirt year in college. You know, right. I'm going to have as much fun as I can have. And they may cut me tomorrow, but when I go back to West Virginia, I'm going to have a story to tell. And yeah. that's how I lived my first year in the NFL. You know, I was a one-year contract with no signing bonus, minimum wage for the NFL. 
every practice I'm told, you know, you know, if you suck bad enough, we're shipping your ass back to the you know hills of West Virginia with all your hillbilly friends kind of a deal. Right. But I didn't care, man. I was, I was in Phoenix having the time of my life and yeah, that's what it looked like. So I'm still smoking and, and drinking and, and hanging out with people that do, but my life really changed my second year in the NFL when we were playing the fourth preseason game against the San Diego Chargers, you know, they had Junior Seau and all that. And the fourth preseason game is a big deal to the Jason Starkeys of this world that are on one-year contracts because after that game is when they make the final cut and they, you know, and that's the final roster. So every year it was a big deal, but specifically this one, because I was pretty much a practice squad guy the year before, and now I'm competing to be the full-time backup and have a full-time position on the roster. So I was due to start that entire game. It was the first drive of that game. Um, I'm blocking a defensive lineman, and my left guard comes over and just annihilates him. And in the process of that defensive lineman falling to the ground, and I'm still very much holding him, my right shoulder subluxes, which is to say it pops out, pops back in, and it's followed by excruciating pain. And mm. and I was in a lot of fear. I didn't know whether to run off the field, tell them I was hurt, because literally a few weeks earlier in that training camp, a guy they drafted, a friend of mine from Northwestern, they cut him because he got an ACL tear. Mm. So in my mind, if I tell them I'm hurt, they're going to cut me too. So the adrenaline of the game and the opportunity, I played through that entire game without saying anything. But when the game was over and we were busting out of there, I asked Mike, the starter, who at this time had had 21 surgeries, won a Super Bowl. Like he was kind of my sponsor, if you will, of the NFL. And I said, man, this is what happened tonight. And I don't know what to do. What do you think? So he opened up the lapel of his jacket and he pulled out a bottle of pills and he gave me a couple what turned out to be Percocet, 7.5s for pink. Pink pills, I'll never forget them. Hmm. He said, I want you to take these, and I don't want you to tell anybody. You know, you had a damn good game, especially since all that went on. I mean, he had a lot of respect for me after that conversation. He said, don't say anything. I think you want to make the team. And once you make the team for the first, you know, game of the season, then, you know, even if they cut you, they got to pay you. Yep. So, yep. I was like, okay. And he gave me those pills, Jack. And I tell you what, in about 30 minutes, I wasn't scared of getting cut. I mean, I was top of the world. I said, hey, that stuff did something to me that had never been done years to that time. I, I mean, I had so much ego. I was like, why the hell would you cut someone like me? I mean, I just played four quarters against the Chargers with a shoulder that popped out, you know? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> so I didn't say anything. The next day I got to make the team. And and then for the next three years, you know, it was the same old story. I had a lot of shoulder issues. Um, and I kept it to myself. It's how um, – you know, I ended up going to a physical therapy clinic, but I managed it with a lot of pills. And in the beginning, yeah. it's like, you know, these things, I know they're dangerous. And I'll only take them, you know, whenever I'm the starter. If Mike gets hurt and I have to be the starter, then I'll take them. Well, then I start having a lot of pain in practice. Okay, well, I'll only take them mm-hmm. during the week when it hurts because of practice. Well, then, you know, we get to the end of the season. Well, I'll only take them in the off season because of, you know, training when I'm training. Well, I'll and I changed that pill prescription plan so many times. I was working our team doctors and other outside doctors. I was stealing pills from uh, other guys because, you know, not everyone on the team. I don't want to misrepresent, you know, the reality of the situation, yeah. but at least 70% of our team had something, whether it be Lortabs, Percocets. I mean, one of them even used to take, you know, Oxys. And that pill always scared the hell out of me, so I never took that. But, like one thing I always held on to growing up is 
is the idea that I know I'm not an addict because I would go through football seasons without touching any any alcohol in high school because my high school coach said if you drink one beer you'll lose all your weeks of conditioning you know so I wouldn't drink I'd smoke weed on occasion but I wouldn't drink in college I'd never get loaded during football season because I was afraid the NCAA would test me you know and then in the spring that you know would change but you know up to this time with the Cardinals like I never really got loaded during football season until now. And now I'm actually going to practice under the influence of some pretty significant pain medication. So just like this delusion that I've been operating under that I'm not an addict because I've been able to control it during this periods of my year is now out the window. Yeah. And, and I don't really have a lie to tell myself anymore that allows me to be okay with that. So there was certain, there was a certain level of me knowing that I'm now crossing over into a threshold that is potentially going to be life altering. Um, although I wasn't in a place where I was willing to take any action on it, that was what was going on. So I played the NFL for four years and you know, I played with people like Emmett Smith and Jake Plummer and Neas Williams and you know, Mean Joe Green was a defensive line coach and he was an asshole for the record. If you got any Steeler fans listening, you know, all my family Steeler fans, but I can't stand Mean Joe Green. <laughs> anyway, Simeon Wright. Were you I mean, physically dependent on, on the opiates? That's a great question, Chris. Yeah. I mean, there was a point, in, and I don't know if it was that second year when they were introduced to me, but definitely by the third year where if uh, if I had a period where I didn't have any, I would start to experience physical withdrawal. So yeah. what that looks like for people that may not be familiar is there's definitely certain levels of anxiety that you're going to experience for me cold sweats became more prevalent after my career, but sometimes within my career, you know, diarrhea is a big part of that too. I mean, but there's definitely physical withdrawals issues that, you know, I was experiencing, you know, Mm -hmm. as a result of not having them. But to be honest, Chris, I always had them. Like back then I run out, I'm calling the doc. Like I didn't have that real insecurity that I'm going to run out for good and for all. So it wasn't as severe as it was later. Because yeah. I mean, when we're on the plane, we're we're drinking and, and docs are passing out pills and. So you were, we're playing in the NFL. You were playing in the NFL, physically dependent on opiates for Very probably about so. what two years? Three. Three years. I'd say wow. three, because this is a preseason. So by the time I'm done with that season, which is my second year, I I believe I had a physical dependency on on drugs on uh. you know, narcotics. So what was the, what was the moment that, I mean, I mean that obviously, so that continued your whole career, correct? Mm-hmm. And then what, what is the moment that you realized that you had an issue or did you, or did you recognize it, you know, within that time? Didn't recognize it within that time. Uh, a couple, you know, bottoms, if you will, or mm-hmm. first step experiences occurred in my life, just moments of humility and potential. The you know, first one is when when the head coach calls me up, you know, and, and they cut me, you know. I mean, he says, "Hey, get your playbook." You know, the head coach wants to talk to you, and this was after four games into my fourth year when I thought I'd already made another team. So I go up there, and I'm loaded at the time, and this is seven in the morning, and I'm already four, five, six pills into the day. <clears throat> so I don't remember much of that conversation. I do remember, you know, getting emotional around it because I'm already under the influence. He yeah. says, "Look, Jason, his name's Dave McGinnis. Good man." He says, "I know you've been playing hurt for a long time." And we're prepared to, you know, release you. We got to release you to make a roster spot. And if you think you'll get picked up by somebody else, we will. But if not, we'll put you on IR and pay you this year and, and pay for your surgeries and fix your shoulder. 
And I was like, you know, I'll opt for that and thank you. So when I when I got released from the Cardinals, you know, I still had hope because I'm going to get paid. I got paid eight hundred thousand that last year, biggest contract to date. And I got the opportunity to go get my shoulder fixed. And when I got my shoulder fixed, I got introduced to Oxycontins. Hmm. You know, the first script he gave me didn't work because I built up such a tolerance. So I went back to him and said, well, there's this thing called Oxycontin. It's a time-release pill. It's used for usually cancer or other terminal patients, but I think it might have an effect on yours. And he gave me some 10 milligram, you know, script and, and I took them and I quickly took them and then he wouldn't give me any more. And this was my first experience in the real world of a doctor not doing what I want him to do. Yeah. So I, you know, I essentially started going out and scoring those things, you know, in the black market. Um, so that was pretty humiliating. You know, life got so bad for me. I'd spent so much money that uh, I couldn't afford oxycodone anymore. I mean, I was stealing from neighbors. I was knocking on doors, asking to use their bathroom, and then go in there and go through their medicine cabinet. I mean, I'm that guy. Yeah. You know, and then finally I get to a place where I don't have any more money in the bank, and, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm pawning things like Randy Moss signed footballs mm-hmm. and memorabilia from college and, and the NFL, just giving them my dope guy so I can get more oxys. And finally he's like, look, man, I've got a lot of your memorabilia, and I appreciate that. But why do, you, why do you keep coming here? I was like, man, I just, I get sick when I don't take this stuff. He goes, I get it, man, I get it, man. He goes, well, this stuff's real expensive. Why don't you try this stuff? And that's when he introduced heroin into my life. And that was a, that was a drug that I never thought I'd ever take. Yep. Like, that was, that was the drug that when you cross that threshold, you're a freaking addict. Hmm. You know, and here again, I'm moving what's acceptable line and... I'm like, really, this will not make me sick? He goes, yeah, just take it. And, you know, I was like, I don't do needles. He goes, that's fine. You can put it in Afrin bottles, mix it up with water, shoot it in your nose, yep. and then, you you know, you won't physically be withdrawing anymore. And I started to take that stuff, and I did that for a long time. And then and then in 2000, you know, my wife finally said, you know what, I got enough. You know, if you don't go and get some help, I'm going to leave you. Yeah. You know, we've been married for a couple of years. This, this was the, the ultimatum, if you will. Yep. So on February 14th of 2005, my Valentine's Day gift to her was to check myself into the psych ward at Banner Health and detox off of heroin and coke and all the other things I'd been doing. I was there for eight days. They introduced me to methadone as a scientific means to wean me off of this stuff. <clears throat> there was a, you know, a little meeting, an anonymous meeting that would show up in the evenings and you know, we'd have to go in there and sit and listen, but I was really in no shape to pay attention. And I was physically ill from all the stuff that my body was trying to kick. When I got out of that, <clears throat> they told me I should go find this 12-step program solution and that there's, you know, various meetings throughout the city of Phoenix and I needed to go connect with one. So I did. And, uh, and I managed to stay sober for about a day. Hmm. And then I, you know, I started scoring heroin again. Yep. I kept going to those 12-step meetings, but I was, you know, I wasn't drinking. You know, so I kind of justified, well, you're not drinking, but I was the guy going to the bathroom to, you know, ingest more heroin so that I wouldn't be dope sick and experience the night sweats and the physical ailments and the loose bowels and, you know, the anxiety, like, it, you know, it alleviated me and all that. And I lived that way, you know, for almost <clears throat> another year and a half. So one of my other low points is I came home for the 2006 reunion for Marshall football team, and I'd been going to the methadone clinic for almost a year now which is a place that you go at 5.30 in the morning, you line up with a bunch of junkies, and you wait to get this little dose of methadone. It's like a little cough syrup type of thing. And then supposedly it blocks all your 
opiate sensors and therefore, you know, heroin and Noxycontins and all that won't have an effect on you. So I was doing that for a long period of time. And when I went home for this reunion, you know, I, I wouldn't go unless I found a clinic there. And so I got this doctor and talked to that doctor and I set it all up so I could go home for this reunion because Chad and all the guys wanted me to go. And I'm standing in line in my hometown in Huntington, West Virginia, in a stupid methadone clinic, waiting with all the junkies to get our little fix. When out walks a case manager who was a former teammate of mine at Marshall University, he was two, he was two years younger than me. I was a team captain when he was up and coming. And he looked oh. me right in the eyes, and I mean, I can only imagine what I look like. He said, Jason, what are you doing here? Uh. Come back in my office and let's talk. And it's just like, even at that moment where I knew what I needed physically, it's just, man, it just broke my heart. It was yeah. a real tough, yeah, tough experience. I bet. July, July 22nd, 2006, Jackie, I woke up in my car in Phoenix, Arizona. I was parked outside of a Walgreens, and I've been sleeping in that car in various different parking lots throughout that city for over, you know, six weeks. And uh, <clears throat> I had windows rolled up with blankets in them. You know, it's in the heat of the summer. You know, I've, even though I was a millionaire by the age of 24 in life, I was over a million dollars in debt at this time. I was separated from my wife. Yeah. We owned real estate throughout the, the city, but I wasn't allowed in any of those places. You know, and I was contemplating whether to go in and rob the Walgreens uh. for my next score. My dope man had died. I had no connections to get any stuff. You know, I was, I was just broken uh-huh. and my phone rang and I looked down and it was, and it was my wife and I hadn't talked to her for some time. And I'm sure I reluctantly took the call wondering why in the world she'd be contacting me on this uh-huh. day. And, and through a conversation that I vaguely remember, she essentially asked me to come home. Huh. You know, and I hung up the phone at that time. And just to give you some insight to where my head was, I thought to myself, she's finally figured it out. She can't live without me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So just to the audience, if you laughed at that joke, you're probably one of us. But anyway, and if you didn't, (laughs) then you might be safe. But uh, what was going on, Jack, is is an intervention was going down. She told me that she's worried about me. I've been living on the streets for several weeks, and it was supposed to be a record high temperature on this day to come home. And when I walked in, I really thought there would be some sort of a sit down and let's figure this out and move forward and when I walked in literally she was walking out and I was like well where are you going she goes well I'm not staying here hmm. I just wanted you to yeah so I, I stole some alcohol from my neighbor again that day and I went out and wore my little Pennington jersey and and, and squeezed my way into a bar you know and uh and it, they were they had music that night and I remember somewhat you know getting up and stealing the microphone and trying to steal the show and I could only hmm. imagine how how disgusting my appearance really was. I, I don't even know when the last time I had a shower. Well, apparently Larky got a call that night, my wife and some people that were in that bar that knew us and knew me and said, Jason looks like he's going to die. You need to do something. So what she did was call my old college quarterback, Chad Pennington. And he, even though he was going into his, uh, he's going into his eighth training camp with the New York Jets, you know, he stopped what he was doing and made some phone calls and orchestrated a, an intervention on his old son and good buddy, you know, and that next morning when I came to, I came to to a wife standing next to our bed with me laying in it, <clears throat> hung over yet again and passed out. And she said, Jason, I got somebody that wants to see you. Mind if I go down and get him? And I said, sure. And as she left the room, again, I'm left wondering, 
what in the world could this woman be doing? You know, I mean, I'd beaten her, I'd emotionally abused her. I'd stolen every penny we accumulated together. We had four mortgages and we couldn't pay one bill. And she is working two jobs trying to keep it all together. And when she enters the room right behind her was the best man in our wedding. His name's Sean Saunders. And he was an offensive lineman with me at Marshall. And when he walked in that room, I knew where he'd flown in from. He came in from Boston. He was, you know, he worked, um, at a company back in Boston and I knew he must've traveled all night cause it was early in the morning. Yeah. And he just said, Jason, we're worried about you. I want you to come with me. And, you know, and, and really that's the first moment that I can ever remember just fully surrendering. Yeah. Just really just giving up. And for me, it just looked like, man, I'm just so at peace that I, for once, I don't have to do the thinking. Like I was just so sick of the rat race, trying to keep it all together, trying to keep this persona, this perception, this, idea to my parents who still lived in West Virginia that your son's okay. Chad had called me numerous times leading up to this event. Hey, if you need help, just let me know. I'll take care of you. And I had too much pride to even say, help me. Yeah. You know, amidst all of that circus, chaos, anxiety, you know, in this moment, I'm like, yeah, I don't care where we're going. I'm ready to go. And where we went was, you know, to Knoxville, Tennessee. Mm. And, uh, you know, we had, we had a plane and of course I, I got Sean to stop by the Circle K. We got one more leader. I mean, he was my drinking buddy. I mean, yep. when a guy like Sean shows up to your bedroom, who you'd partied with the way we used to party and says, I'm worried about you. I mean, that's a sobering moment because yeah. he he had gone through a lot of parties with me. But unlike me, you know, he was able to control and enjoy it. And I was sick and homeless. So yeah. there's a pretty life. incredible feeling that you get that it sounds like you experienced and I experienced and, and most people that I see once they finally get to a place to where you know it's called the first step experience where you you realize that there's nothing that you can do um, and, and you you finally just give up and kind of throw your hands up and just say maybe I don't have all the answers and, and I need help there's a, a very very powerful feeling that comes along with that I believe that's when you leave room for the universe or God or whatever you believe in to to really take hold of you and and take care of you and and although you're in mental pain and you're scared and and don't know what's going to happen I mean it's an incredible feeling once you finally give up it is and it's a feeling of liberation I mean really I mean just and there's there's a sense of hope that enters into your, your your spirit that you know maybe things are going to change, you know, for good and for all. And, and, and just, just the, just the, the piece that it's not up to you anymore. Like you're not the one that's going to be in charge of changing it. Yep. You know, exactly. Literally this point, literally this point, I had tried everything. I mean, we didn't talk about it. And I've already talked two hours, but I've been to shrinks, you know, I've been to the psych ward, I've detoxed, I've been to 12 step meetings. I'd started the 12 steps. Um, and, and I just couldn't stay sober. I mean, not for a day. And, you know, I'd had jobs, I'd lost jobs, I did geographicals, you know, I tried to only drink, I tried to um, not drink, you know, I tried not to do, you know, hard drugs. And then I'm a heroin addict taking methadone. Like, it just, there was a level of insanity that existed with my thinking around drugs and alcohol that just, you know, left me incapable of controlling and enjoying it, you know, ever. Right. And so in that moment of liberation and, 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 and awakening, if you will, you know, I went with him and I still try to control the show. And we almost missed the flight and Chad called me. He's got his first class tickets. 
And I remember kind of being excited about that. I was like, man, I get to drink all the way across the country for free one yeah. last time. Like, yeah. let's do this right. You know, and Pennington's my saving grace. And there's some pride and ego in that. So I'm wearing his jersey from the night before. And <laughs> we damn near missed the flight. And this is a guy I looked up to. I mean, this family, I held them in a high regard. And I'll never forget. We were right outside the airport. And the plane was supposed to leave, like, real soon. And he called Sean. And Sean handed me the phone and said, look, you better take this call. It's Chad. And Chad never cussed, but for effect, he did on this conversation. Jason, if you miss this fucking plane, don't ever call me again. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, right? Yeah. Like, wow. Yep. So, so it was just like, it was that moment in time where like literally your last friends on this planet have just drawn a line in the sand. You either accept this help. You know, there's a passage that I'm, you know, real passionate about in our literature where it talks about you get to that jumping off point where you have one of two alternatives, you know, you can either continue blotting out your miserable and tolerable existence to the bitter end, or you can accept spiritual help and me getting on that plane and flying across country and eventually checking myself into a treatment facility was my willingness to accept a spiritual, you know, solution. Yeah. And what's really cool about my story is the, the man that was waiting in the Knoxville airport was coach Pennington. And he gave me a big hug and he, there was no, I told you so. It was just, man, I'm glad to see you, Jason. We were worried about you. And I'm so happy you decided to come here. You know, and the place that they took me was founded by a guy that got sober in a hospital with his dad. Hmm. And just wow. God was just kind of all through this whole thing. And I just remember we sat down and did all the application with the owner, you know, and, or the administrator of the facility. And we sat in this huge boardroom along this grand table and coach P sat across from me. And at the head of that table, the administrator was checking us in. And when all the paperwork was done, coach wrote a check and handed it to him and said, if you need more, you call me. Hmm. And he came around the table and he gave me a big hug and he told me it was going to be okay. And that he loved me. And I was just like, I mean, how could I not go through with it? Man, it was such an emotional experience, right? And I, and I don't want to package this as a spiritual experience. This is really just the humility that's involved with accepting the idea that, you know what, my problem has become so great that people like this are going out of their way writing checks like that to send me to a facility like this yep. so that I can get some help. Yeah. I'll tell you what, I don't know the Penningtons, but they are uh, some good people. That's uh, an amazing, amazing influence on your life too. And I, I, that's such a cool story that he was standing there, you know, when he landed. I, I love that. Salt of the earth kind of people. Yeah. You know, and my story continues where, you know, I'm in a treatment facility for 30 days and, you know, I do my first step there about two weeks into that, you know, and I had a hard time sleeping. I mean, anytime you're kicking opiates, you know, it's, it's difficult to sleep. And I'll never forget, you know, the first step assignment they gave me was a long one. I mean, typical treatment stuff. And I wrote this, this piece that I thought would make everyone in the group just be like, wow, you know, like I'm trying to impress him. I'm wearing this mask. It's not really authentic. And I'm just so grateful that the counselor at the time, his name was Tony and he's a black man and he's, he's a good man. Hmm. And he, he called me on my shit. He said, look, he, I got about, halfway down the first page of a four page assignment. He said, Jason, I want you to stop right there, man. I don't believe that shit for a minute. 
If you keep lying to us, you're going to lie to yourself is what he said. Until you start being honest with yourself, I mean honest, you ain't got a chance of getting sober. (laughs) I want you to take that assignment back tonight. I want you to do it and be honest. And then you come back and share. Now, you got to understand, this is a co-ed facility. So I'm in a circle with men, women. I'm trying to impress all of them equally. And Tony, the ringleader, just kind of shot me down, man. I went back. And I hit my knees that night after doing that assignment again. And I remember praying, giving my life to God of my understanding and telling him, basically, I can't do this, but I believe you can. And my first spiritual experience in recovery was a, was a good night's rest, followed by a solid bowel movement the next day. I mean, when those two things happened, I knew there was a God. And I knew he wasn't me. And I went, and I went into the damn group, and I gave that assignment. And Tony gave me a big hug, and I cried a bunch and used a lot of tissues. And there was a lot of humility in that. But yeah. Chris will tell you the same thing. I think a first-step experience is extremely important. And I want to also say I had a lot of first-step experiences in my life leading up to this moment. So just having an adequate first-step experience, which is really just – realizing the, 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 the hopelessness of your condition and your situation. Like you've got to really get down with that in an authentic, true and honest way. Yeah. And when you do, and only then do I feel you've got any opportunity to have the willingness to participate in the solution of a 12 step program. Right. But just having an adequate first step experience is not going to be enough. You know, I mean, I've, I've read some literature where it talks about a guy that was, afraid and it sobered him for a bit, you know, after having a real first step experience that involved a metaphor about quicksand, you know, and the, and the bitter morass as, as he felt like he was sinking deeper, like alcohol was his master and he had surrendered, right? And then two sentences later, it says the insidious insanity of the first drink was on him again and he was loaded. I mean, that's what it looks like. Like we can have these epiphanies, these awakenings, these Sean Saunders shows up at your bedside, let's go get help moments. But if it's not followed by solutions, spiritual based solutions in the steps, then that's all it's going to be is a, is, is a bit. You'll be sober for a bit. And then you, the insidious insanity of the next drink or drug or whatever is going to eventually come back. And so I'm just glad that's not my story. And my first step experience, you know, it happened there in that facility. And, and after that was done, I moved on to a sober living facility and, and, and chose to do that. It wasn't mandatory. They asked me, hey, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I want to get sober. Well, we recommend you should go to a sober living house. Well, what is that? It's the apartment's right down the street. Mm. <laughs> and they cost 130 bucks a week. Yep. And, uh, and my dad had to cut that bill. Yep. And with that came $35 of food stamps. So my sober environment, like there was four of us in the home, and we'd all put our $35 of food stamps together, which would give us a hundred and what is that? 40 bucks. And then we'd have to go to the local grocery store and we'd have to work together. And then we'd turn in food stamps at the end of that transaction. I mean, talk yep. about a, you know, humbling, you know, existence, you know, for right. someone like me who thought I was terminally unique because of my experience with being an NFL football player. And here I am a few years later, turn in food stamps at a, at a damn sober living house in Knoxville, Tennessee, being paid for by someone else. I mean, it was just, it was a humbling deal all the way around. So I was sober for eight months in Knoxville before I decided to head back to Phoenix. Got a sponsor, did some work there in the 12-step program and fellowship, and got kind of a foundation laid for, you know, what life was eventually going to look like. And was that, was that it for you? Are you, I mean, recovered from there or? I've been sober since July 25th, 2006. That's to say I haven't had a drink, a yeah. pain pill, a mind-altering substance, 
it's definitely through the grace of a God in my understanding and a 12-step program. Uh, and as a result of those two things, I am recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. And I believe that this process, if done with complete willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness, you know, anyone can recover. Amazing. You know, and, and hopefully the two hours of podcast I've given you has painted some picture of how hopeless a life of drug addiction and alcoholism can actually look. But also, I mean, today, you know, I'm a leader of a multi-million dollar company. Yep. I work for and with my best friend yep. and the guy on the phone, Chris, who runs the other side of that you know, <laughs> operation. You yep. know, I mean, that woman that kicked me out of my house, Jack, you know, she's not here right now because she had to fly to California, but we've been married for over 16 years. Oh, we wow. got two kids in the other room and we're starting to get a little loud. If you've heard them, their names are Reed and Kendall and they are nine and 12 and they ain't seen dad loaded high beat mom or, you know, act insanely ever yeah yeah i got guys i work with and take through the program you know i've got fellowships that i'm connected with and are involved with on a regular basis like my whole outlook on life has 100 percent changed like I've, I've had a psychic change as a result of a vital spiritual experience which makes people like chris and i just look at everything differently yep. and our blueprint for living is totally different and i'm sure through your podcast with men like Chris, Bubba, myself, and many others, God willing, your audience is going to get to hear and see what that looks like. I, I'm so excited about this. First of all, thank you for sharing that story. I know that, I mean, your journey is incredible. Um, and I, I'm just so amped up to continue to share all of these stories. What's interesting, and I mentioned this in the beginning, is that they all look so similar. And I learned that as I was starting to learn about Chris's journey too. Um, so that's a huge part of this is that everybody needs to understand that it's, it's never easy for the person going through it, but it looks really similar from person to person just with some different kind of elements around it. But, you know, look at your life now, how amazing, right? And, and, and that's because of this solution. And I cannot say that enough and we'll repeat this millions of times more if we need to. Uh, but I'm, I'm convinced and can't wait to continue sharing it. And I just can't thank you enough for sharing that story. It's, it's incredible. And, and what a life, you know, what a life is right. The age of miracles is still upon us, you know, and, and I just think what you're doing and the mission that you've taken on is, is really admirable. And, um, you know, we have a solution that absolutely works, you know, and, if, yeah. and I think the other two cents I'd like to throw in for your audience that may not be an alcoholic or addict, or maybe they are, you know, big delusion in this fellowship is that we only are harming ourselves. You know, when the truth is the disease of alcoholism and addiction, you know, it harms much more than just the one that has it. Yeah. And the last point is this is a disease like the taboo and the, and the delusion and the, and the, and the ignorance that it's just a willpower problem is what really I hope, you know, podcasts like this and people with passions like you and Chris can shed some light on it. Like my story isn't the fact that I didn't want to get sober. You know, I didn't want to be a better person. I didn't, you know, I, I've tried that to the point of insanity and homelessness. Yeah. Like I wanted it with every fiber of my being. I just didn't have the ability to do it. I believe once you cross in that threshold where you're an actual real alcoholic or addict, you have lost the ability to control your using and drinking. When that happens, you know, my opinion 
You've got a disease that's fatal and progressive. It's a phenomenon of craving, which is to say when you ingest something that changes the way you feel physically, then you have no control over the amount that you're going to ingest from that point on. It's also a mental obsession. It's a mental obsession. You're going to think that someday, somehow, you're going to be able to control and enjoy your drinking or using, and that this time will be different. That is the great, I call it, lie that exists within the mind of every real alcoholic and addict. And the combination of those two facts, medical facts, Mm -hmm. is what leads people like me and Chris using and drinking the way we used to use and drink. And the only solution that has been found to 100% work is a 12 steps of pro, you know, program of recovery and a spiritual solution. That's, that's all I offer the people I work with today. And guess what? It's all they need. We just have to. If anyone else is motivated or fired up and you know, struggling in this area, just know that you too can have this. You know? and, and all that debt that I talked about, I ain't in it no more. That yeah. wife that kicked me out, you know, she's still my wife. You know, used to not be able to be employed. You know, I've been employed for over 13 years now. So life's pretty good. And thanks for the opportunity to share with you. I know this turned into a really long production. I tried to warn you. I like to talk. No. Uh, We we knew what we were in for. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're going to, we we would love to have you on again too. And I cannot thank you enough. It's been a blast getting to know you. Uh, I've only known you a couple days now and then kind of, you know, kind of before that through Chris, but uh, it, it's, I really, really enjoyed hearing your story and uh, we're going to just, we're just going to keep doing this um, and until we affect as many people as we can to understand um, this and, and your story has absolutely helped that. Um, so thank you so much for, for joining us today. Absolute honor and a pleasure. Thank you for thinking of me, even though it took, you know, five podcasts before we got there. <laughs> But I think we came up with six podcasts of content. So maybe yes. you can edit and break this up. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's it's definitely cool. I love I love the Barry family and Jack, anything you need, you know, in, in regards to this or anything else, I'm just a phone call away. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jason. That was great, man. Awesome. Thank you guys. Love you, Chris. <laughs>